You know, Isaiah chapter 6 has long been a passage, maybe like for some of you, it's been a very rich passage for me in my own life um, for a number of reasons, but primarily because we see in that passage a very sobering, humbling experience in Isaiah's life and really the precursor to his ministry. You see, what makes Isaiah's experience so uh, impactful, what makes Isaiah's experience so sobering is that Isaiah gets a glimpse, he gets a vision, he gets a picture of God. And it's not just a, oh, that's what God looks like kind of picture. It might, by the way, it might be different than the one you have hanging in your hallway, perhaps. Now you see that the picture, the glimpse that Isaiah gets when he gets a vision of God, really what you understand is you understand it through his response. In other words, we don't really know exactly everything that he saw, though he does give some description. And even his description is a little cryptic. But we do understand, what we do see is that when he saw God, his response was that of humility. In fact, someone who was probably wanting to be dead. It's why he responds in this way, woe is me. I am undone. Another way to talk about his unclean lips is I am a sinful, sinful man and I live with a sinful, sinful people. That's his response when he sees God. Now why would Isaiah respond after a vision of God in that way? I believe the reason why Isaiah responds with that kind of response when he sees God is because he sees Not just the majesty of God, but he sees the holiness of God. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were undone by the holiness of God? Perhaps I could even ask this question. Has there ever been a time in which you were undone by God's holiness. Has there ever been a time in your life where you, as you uh, feel like you've had this encounter with God, that it put you in your proper place? That it helped you understand a little more fully, a little more deeply who you actually are, not who you think you are, who you want to be, but who you actually are because you saw God for who he really is. You know, one of the observations or one clear observation that we see that is consistent through all of Scripture is this, that when people had an encounter with God, when they had a vision of God, when they got to see him in some specific way, we see that that this encounter was never a, a passive or indifferent or casual response. In other words, people didn't go, oh, hey, God, what's up? People would never go, oh, that's cool. Oh, God, you're, you're pretty awesome. Pretty awesome? Remember we talked about that before? God is the very definition of awesome. 
No, you see, when people had an encounter with God, or even angel of God, really the primary response, the initial response, was always that of fear. It was that of trembling. It's that of a feeling of being absolutely and completely undone. We get the, maybe the visual image in this way, and I don't mean to be crude when I say this, but it's like someone who sees something and they all of a sudden have wet pants. That's the kind of trembling and fear we're talking about here. In fact, even when an angel of the Lord would appear to someone in Scripture, we see that the first words that they would come out of their mouth was this, fear not. Why would that be the first thing they say? Fear not. (laughs) Because that's exactly what people were doing. They see God, they get a vision of God, they get a vision of anything that is uh, of the heavenly host, and we see that it is that of overwhelming fear and trembling. And so the first thing that an angel, or even Jesus himself, has to say is, do not fear, oh good, because I'm freaking out right now. In fact, if you look at just a, a whole slew of scriptures, which I won't do for our time here this morning, but just to give you a couple examples, for example, as Pastor, I'm going to call you Pastor Wood here, uh, as George Wood, our, our beloved chairman and el- on the elder board, he mentioned this at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20. We see that the people of Israel have been delivered from the land of Egypt. We see they've been kind of, they've wandered really up to the base of Mount Sinai, We see that ultimately that God is going to be kind of preparing them to enter into the promised land. We see that they're a rebellious bunch too. But what we see in that scripture is that God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai. And the way in which God's presence is kind of manifested on Mount Sinai, it's thunder, it's lightning, it's cracking, it's trembling. I mean, you kind of figure like, I don't want to go near that mountain. That looks like a very dangerous place to be. And only Moses was invited to the top of the mountain. In fact, we see it in the end of Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and following. We see that the people of Israel respond in this way. Moses, you speak to us, but we do not want God to speak to us because we're scared. Moses, you can go up to God, but please don't let God speak because we are scared. It reminds me of what we see in Revelation chapter 1. When God, actually Jesus himself, reveals, the glorified Jesus reveals himself to John and says, John, I want you to write all these things. And what we see is that when John gets a vision of Jesus, verse 17, he says, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. You get the picture. We see that encounters with God were not casual nor were they comfortable. Yes, on the one hand, we see in Scripture, we must understand or keep this in balance, but we do see in Scripture that God does invite us into a personal relationship We do see that God does invite us into a relationship of intimacy. He does invite us into a relationship in which we can call our Heavenly Father even Abba Daddy. 
We see in Hebrews, for example, where it says, come boldly before the throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of need. So yes, Scripture invites us to come to God, to run to him, to not feel ashamed in our coming to him, but to say, no, we know that God loves us and cares for us and he invites us in, that's good, but we must also in the same breath observe that God is a holy God. And until we understand the majesty and until we understand the power of God's holiness, only then can we learn how to live holy lives as God commands us. Perhaps it's good for at this, at this moment or at this juncture to define well, what do we mean by holiness? What do we mean by referencing God's holiness? By the way, you have a little insert in your bulletin. If you have not yet pulled that out, please pull that out. I've been encouraged by the fact that this has served to be a good jump-off point for many of your conversations and Bible studies and life groups in the weeks previous, so I'd encourage you to keep that habit going. The little first page there gives us a few descriptions or definitions as to what is holiness. Holiness can basically mean, mean this, and I know I'm going to be reading it to you, but go ahead and read along with me. It means to divide or to mark off or to set apart from all else. It is the opposite of profane. It is the opposite of being common or ordinary. In other words, to be holy is to be different It is to be distinct, and it is to be unique from anything that is common or ordinary. So the holiness of God is that which divides him from everyone else and everything else. It is the quality of being different and distinct and unique or one of a kind. It's why Moses can say in Exodus chapter 15, he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer to that rhetorical question is no one. There is nothing or no one that is like you. And that is why God's holiness is oftentimes very difficult to grasp. It's very difficult to comprehend. It's very difficult to even imagine because it is so contrary to the world in which we live. It is so contrary to you and to me. It is so contrary to everything we know and perceive on a daily basis. So when we think about the holiness of God, there's an idea or an aspect in which we get description, but we really do not understand it. Because it is so like uh, it is so unlike us. You might recall from the first sermon I preached when we started this series, we we talked about the number of uh, three different rules in which we uh, that we must follow or apply in our desire to know God as He really is. And the first rule in knowing God as He really is is understanding that God is not like you. You recall that? To know God as he really is is to first understand that God is not like you. And so when we reflect upon his, God's holiness, we must understand that, it is God, that God's holiness is that which sets him apart from all his creation. That's why I appreciate what Chip Ingram says in his definition when he says, God's holiness 
refers to both his majesty as well as his moral purity. Holiness is the absolute or absence of evil and encompasses and defines all that is pure, whole, righteous, and healthy in the universe. So how does God reveal his holiness? I love hearing the turning of the pages. That means you're following along. How does God reveal his holiness? You'll see seven different things listed. We're only going to actually do the first six. God reveals his holiness in a number of different ways, but the first way in which God reveals his holiness to us through the scriptures or at least we see it recounted in the scriptures, is this. He reveals his holiness through supernatural encounters. As I mentioned earlier in the service here, we see that whenever anyone had an encounter with God, we see that they were always undone. There was always a response of fear. And more often than not, they, they trembled and they were on their faces. And you think about it this way, at one moment, they were going about their life and their business as if everything was normal. And then all of a sudden, in a split instant, everything was not normal. All of a, one, at one moment, everything was fine and dandy. They are going about their business, maybe even a kind of a perceived essence of control. And then, in the blink of an eye, when God engages them, everything changes. All of a sudden, all their normal business no longer matters. I was just reading uh, this past week about the earthquake that that struck Anchorage, Alaska, or off the coast of Anchorage, Alaska in 1964. Most of you probably are at least aware of it. But in 1964, March 27th, I think it was, uh, I could be wrong, 26th, 27th, somewhere in there, at 536, Good Friday, everybody's sitting down for their dinner, it's Easter weekend, you know, it's another year, everything's kind of hunky-dory, going as normal, and then all of a sudden, the biggest earthquake to hit North America strikes, unexpectedly. And it's because it's so big, I mean, it's, it's so big that ever, all the seismic scales on the East Coast are recording it. 47 of the states recorded tremor activity. The Space Needle, 1,200 miles away, was swaying because of the earthquake off of Alaska. There's a park in Alaska today called Earthquake Park, and it's very uh, appropriately named because the ground is literally in a wave formation. The trees are all over the place because of what happened into the ground. One moment, everybody's sitting down for their Good Friday meal, and in a second, split second, everything changes. We see that God, when people had an encounter with God, specifically a vision of his majesty and his holiness, one day they're going about their business, and as soon as they have that encounter, everything changes. In fact, we see that their entire life changes. God reveals himself through supernatural encounters. But we also see that God reveals his holiness 
through a number of different places. What we need to understand in this point is this, that wherever God is present, it instantly becomes holy. Wherever God is present, it instantly becomes holy. You might recall in Exodus chapter 3, for example, that, that the burning bush, Moses is, you know, he spent 40 years as royalty in Egypt, and then he spent 40 years in the wilderness as a nobody. And then all of a sudden on the scene, there's a burning bush that really kind of caught Moses' attention. He's like, what is this? A bush, a bush is burning, and yet it's not actually burning So I'm going to go check it out. And as he gets closer, a voice comes from the bush. And we see that God himself is speaking. And then the first thing God says is, Moses, take off your sandals, for the place in which you stand is holy ground. Or we see the tabernacle, for example. We see that throughout the wilderness, as Israel navigated along to the promised land, we see that when they would set up the tabernacle, the 12 tribes of Israel surrounded the tabernacle, but there was always this buffer around the tabernacle. And we see that the buffer was there because of God's holiness. In other words, only the high priest, only the the Levitical priesthood could actually enter into that area. In fact, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, but he had to go through a whole ceremony of cleansing just to be in the presence of God. And then even then, there was a separation. And they even tied a piece of rope on his ankle to drag him out if he wasn't cleansed. So you think about, when you think about God's holiness, every place that God, uh, every place in which God's presence was manifested was instantly declared holy. Thirdly, we see that God reveals his holiness through the law. Now, there are a lot of rules and there's a lot of commands, and we could even look at the Ten Commandments like in Exodus chapter 20. But what we see is that there's a lot of rules that God has given to us. And I think oftentimes in Christianity, and perhaps maybe some of you are even relating this even now, especially if you're younger, but when you think about God and his rules, oftentimes our perception of Christianity, our perception of following Jesus is this. Christianity is a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's what I can do, and it's what I can't do. It's what God determines is right and what God determines is wrong. Isn't that what Christianity is? That's the Christian answer, no. I understand. May I suggest to you that I believe a proper view of biblical commands is to clearly distinguish between that which is holy and that which is not holy. In other words, the commands of Scripture help us understand what is of God and what is not of God. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 30, for example, that the reason why God gave us these laws, the reason why God gave us these biblical commands is not to be a killjoy on your life. The reason why God tells us so much of of how to live this life and therefore how not to live this life isn't because he wants to be a Debbie Downer. I know I use that phrase a lot, and if you're Debbie, I'm very sorry. But God does not want to, to destroy your life. He wants you to gain your life. 
And if you're a parent, you understand exactly what I'm talking about because you understand that if I have no rule, if I have no expectation on my kids, then, well, the outcome is probably certain that it's not going to be something that you hope for. In other words, the reason why you have rules and expectations in the home is so that your children would grow to understand this is how life ought to be lived. This is the pathway to life. This is the pathway to uh, not-so-good decisions. We see this spelled out for us in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Just to give you a context here, Moses is giving a final charge to the people of Israel. This is a new generation that is up and coming. They are the generation that's going to enter the promised land. You see, their previous generation, their rebellious parents, parents wandered around for 40 years in the desert because they disobeyed God. And now we have a new generation that didn't grow up in captivity, and Moses giving them a final charge, and this is what he says. Deuteronomy 30, 15 and through 20. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare you, to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the, going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and your length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord has swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. The point is this. Every command of scripture is given, is given by an absolute holy God who in his kindness and who in his tenderheartedness wants to prevent you from being hurt or damaged. As one person said, holiness is wholeness. Holiness is wholeness. When we see or when we perceive the commands of Scripture, the way in which we ought to rightly perceive them is that God loves me enough to tell me what causes death and what brings life. God loves me enough to tell me what I need to know, not necessarily everything I want to know at the time, not because he's just coming alongside and saying, it's okay, my grace is sufficient, do whatever you want. No, he says, I care that you, that you truly experience the abundant life. And by the way, this decision is not going to lead you to experience the abundant life, but this decision will. Obeying my commands results in life. Disobedience results 
ultimately in death. This kind of leads us to our fourth observation here. We see God reveal his holiness through the prophets. You see, the prophets' primary role was to be a voice piece on behalf of God to his people. The role of a prophet of God was to be speaking on behalf of God to his people. It was to call people to repentance and to also assure them of God's redemptive promises to them. I appreciate how Chip Ingram says it. He says, the prophet's job was simple, to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. I kind of like that for my job description, I think. To afflict the comfortable, but to comfort the afflicted. Fifthly, we see that God reveals his holiness through his wrath and his judgment. Wait, God expresses or shows and reveals his holiness by his judgment and wrath? Yes. Because sin is contrary to God and it's contrary to his nature and therefore he is determined to eradicate anything that is contrary to his nature. In other words, God is obligated. He must destroy sin because it is opposite of who he is. A.W. Tozer says it this way, whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably United. In other words, when God sees what is killing you, when God sees what is killing a nation, when God sees what is destroying what he has made, he brings his righteous wrath and judgment, not because he hates it, but because he loves it. And he wants to eradicate like a, like a masterful surgeon, removing anything that is killing your body. Not playing nice. It's serious business. It's why in Acts chapter 5, for example, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I'll just explain it to you very briefly. The church age has just begun. Amazing things are happening. Thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The church is growing. Great things are happening. You look at Acts chapter 2, you look at Acts chapter 4, people are giving everything that everyone had need. People are selling land, selling property, selling real estate, selling whatever, just so they can provide for one another. In other words, no one regarded their stuff as their own, but they regarded it as God's and therefore to serve God's people. And yet Ananias and Sapphira, also wanting to be thought of very, light, uh, very nicely. They also sold a piece of land. The only problem is they lied about it. They said they sold the land for this much, but they actually only sold it for, or for this much, but they actually only sold it for, like, they got more money out of it, and they only gave a certain amount of proceeds, and therefore, in turn, we see that they were lying, and, and really what we understand about that story is that they were being hypocritical, saying one thing but doing another, wanting people to believe one thing but what was, that, what was actually real was another. And God, 
and his desire to preserve and keep the church pure makes a statement. And we see that ultimately Ananias and Sapphira are put to death on the spot by God himself. And you and I might even read that kind of passage in Acts chapter 5 and go, that seems a little uh, extreme, doesn't it? That seems a little extreme for God to put someone to death because they lied. How many of us have lied? Let's take inventory. Come on. Yeah, all hands. Those of you who didn't put your hand, yes, thank you for your very confident honesty right there. I love it. All of us should be doing double hands up. There we go. Yet God, we see that he puts them to death. What we see in Acts chapter 5 is this. God is holy. And anything that is contrary to his holiness must be destroyed. It must be eradicated. That's why I think the sixth point is so overwhelmingly reassuring. That God reveals his holiness through his son. We see also, for example, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, if you want to know who God is, then you have to look no further than the Jesus himself. If you want to know the Father, then just look to the Son as Jesus said himself. But we also see that if you want to understand how much God hates sin and what lengths he's willing to go to eradicate and destroy sin, then we look no further than the cross. If you want to understand how God views sin, even a simple little lie, then just look at the cross. The fact is, God willingly killed his son just to take care of your sin. God killed his son just so that your sin would be removed and your guilt would be removed. That's how much not only does he express his wrath and judgments against sin, but that also reveals his holiness. He sort of raises a couple questions for us. One of the questions that perhaps comes to your mind, it definitely comes on the little sheet in front of you, is this, if God is so holy that he cannot even gaze at sin, then how can sinful people like us have a relationship with God? If God is so holy that he cannot even be around the sin, then how can you and I have a relationship with him because we're sinful. Brothers and sisters, 
I love the book of Romans. It is the most exhaustive explanation of the gospel of Jesus. In the first few chapters, we see nothing but doom and gloom. We get a a sobering understanding of who we are apart from Christ. We see that we are dead in our sin, that we are lost, and that we are hopeless, and that there is none righteous, no, not one, and we have no opportunity, no hope whatsoever. And then we see, but God... And because there's that amazing but God transition in our hopeless state, we see Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Actually, you know what? You should just turn with your Bibles there. I have it on my sheet here, but just turn with your Bibles. This is a passage of Scripture that should be regularly underlined, highlighted, whatever else. Romans chapter 5. A big transition Romans chapter 5, we'll just start in verse 6 and go through verse 10. Paul says this, For while we were still weak, in other words, while we were utterly helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemy for what if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life The point I'm getting at is this the point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 5 is this is that God deals with our unholiness by making us holy through Jesus The reason why you and I can have a relationship with God is only because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. It's only because God took personal responsibility for your sin problem. So even though, yes, God is a holy God, he says, you know what? I'm going to make you a holy nation. That was his promise in Genesis chapter 12. We saw that in Genesis chapter 15 as well last week with the sovereignty of God. God says, I'm going to make you a people that is set apart. That's the same word for holy. A people that is unique. A people that looks like me. A people that follows me. A people that is obedient to me. I'm going to make you a holy people. And the way in which I'm going to accomplish that is through the death of my son. The beauty of Romans chapter 5 is this. Not that just Jesus died. The beauty of Romans chapter 5 is that because he died, we live. That his death was no longer in vain. But his death actually resulted in life. Life for you and me. It kind of begs another question, however. If trusting in Christ's work on the cross blots out our sin, it blots out our sin before God, and we are holy in his sight, then why do you and I keep on sinning? If we are holy before God, then why do you and I keep sinning? 
every single day? Why do we keep screwing it up? If in a sense God has already made things right. I think there's three aspects to our salvation that are vital for us to understand. There's three aspects to our salvation. I won't cross-reference all the references in Scripture to this, but just hear me out in a very succinct fashion. We must understand that our salvation is kind of split into three parts. There's a kind of a past, present, and future to our salvation. What I mean by that is this. We have been saved. And we are also in the same breath being saved. And then also in the same breath, we will one day be saved. We have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. What am I talking about here? When I talk about our salvation past tense, having been saved already, I'm talking about our justification. It's what we see here in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is an act of declaration. God declares us as righteous, as innocent, another way to say, as holy before him. It is a one-time thing. It happens, it is, it is done, and it has uh, present as well as future implications. You are declared holy, so therefore when God views you, he sees you as holy, as righteous. In other words, God says, you're mine, and I declare you to be righteous as I am righteous. But it doesn't end there. Because we all prove to ourselves every day that we're not righteous. And there's the, there's the present tense aspect of our salvation in which we call it sanctification. Another word to, to define that is transformation. The idea of sanctification is really a progressive holiness. In other words, God says this, I declare you as holy and now I'm actually going to make you holy. I declare you innocent, and now I'm actually going to kind of fix you, transform you, so that you live a life that is consistent with what I've already declared you to be. And then we have this future promise. And the Spirit of God then dwelling us, one of its roles, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is not only to empower us for this life, is not only to, get, to give us gifts to, to serve God faithfully, but we see that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to guarantee us of our eternal salvation. And one day, as we've talked about during our heaven series, is that we will receive a glorified body, a perfect body. We will be complete we will be sinless. We will no longer be marred by the curse of sin. In fact, we won't even have a desire for it. Whereas in this life, we struggle with our affections between the flesh and the spirit. In heaven, we will no longer have that struggle. We will fully be saved. We have been saved we are being saved, and one day we will fully be saved. So this side of eternity, we have not yet arrived. And even though God declares us holy, 
He says, now I'm, gonna, I'm in the process of making you holy. That's why we've been talking out very regularly. God's number one goal for your life is not your happiness, but your holiness. God's number one goal for you is not your happiness, but your transformation. Yes, we saw in the goodness of God that God desires for you to be happy, but we must understand also in the same breath that your happiness and experiencing the goodness of God is in our pursuit of God's holiness. So how do you and I respond to this? How should you and I respond to the holiness of of God. There's two things we must understand. First of all, in regards to God's holiness, it is a decision that you must make. The holiness of God, and therefore embarking on a lifetime of pursuing holiness, is, is a decision you must make. What I mean by that is this. You do not slide into holiness. Holiness in your life does not come, come, come along passively. Holiness in your life does not come along casually. It doesn't come along accidentally. You don't accidentally become holy. You don't accidentally become good. No, because everything you do of the flesh, you will uh, consistent with the nature of your flesh, flesh is always contrary to God. So to become holy as God is holy, to do the right thing takes effort on your part. This is why Hebrews 12 says this in verse 14, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. This idea of work requires effort. Yes, it is God who started our faith. Yes, it is God who completes our faith. Yes, it is God who finishes our faith. He started it. He's going to complete it. He promises to do so. But that doesn't mean we sit passively by acting like it doesn't matter, that we don't need to try. No, God works and he pours out his grace on your life so that your efforts actually have real traction so that you can actually change, so that you become become more Christ-like. I always appreciate what the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 says, something that I reflect upon regularly in my life. After the hallmark of faith in chapter 11, we see that Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That phrase, weight and sin, is very interesting because there's a distinguishing aspect of sin and other things that are not considered sin but considered bad for us what am I saying there is the obvious established and written moral law of God that's the, what we call sin anything that, we, that God says this is right this is wrong it's very clear it's, very, it's explicitly stated 
But the author of Hebrews says this, but let's lay aside every weight as well. Not necessarily sin, not necessarily anything that's morally wrong, but any weight that inhibits us from running this race called life. Let me ask you, church family, is there any weight in your life that is limiting or inhibiting your pursuit of God? It may not be wrong. You can't argue biblically that this is a sin, but it may be wrong for you. We're talking about things that are not necessarily morally, considered morally sinful, but they could be things in your life that stand in the way of your pursuit of God and his holiness. Are there things in your life right now that you are dabbling in, that you are entertaining, that you have justified, we're master justifiers, that you have justified in your life that potentially weighs you down, that limits your pursuit of God? It's a decision that you make. The holiness of God, the pursuit of God's holiness is a decision you make, but it is also a command you obey. It's a decision you make, but it is also a command you obey. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 and following. He says, prepare your minds for action and and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children and don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says, you must be holy because I am holy. The point we need to understand about this command is this. Holiness for the follower of Jesus is not optional. Holiness for the follower of Christ is not optional. Holiness for the follower of Christ is what it means to be a Christian. And if you think that you can fall, if be a Christian and care less about holiness, then please let me lead you to faith in Christ after the service. Our pursuit of holiness and our obedience to Christ go hand in hand. Can I just say this, almost in a kind of an uptick, as a positive way of motivation, our pursuit of holiness and the abundant life are inseparable. God doesn't say, I want to make you holy because that's what I want and deal with it. No, the creator of the universe and the creator of your life says, I want you to be holy because that's where life 
actually is. And to think that you can experience life and to think that you can experience joy apart from a pursuit of Christ and his holiness is to mean that you are deceived. So we must understand in a positive way that the life I desire to live, the joy I desire to experience and our pursuit of God and his holiness go hand in hand. They are one and the same. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We just give you thanks for the revelation that you have given us through your word. And we see that one aspect of your revelation to us, Father, is not only just the amazing things that you have done for us and the the amazing promises of Scripture, but we also see, Lord, that you call us to a life of holiness. And you revealed your holiness and what that looks like. In other words, you revealed your holiness so that we might know better what, what you want us to become. Lord, I just pray that we as a church, as a church family, as the body of Christ, a church that Jesus, you died for, that you gave your life for so that we might live life and experience it abundantly. I pray that we'd be a church determined, resolute, eager in our pursuit of holiness. Not because we do it begrudgingly, not because we're like, okay, fine, but because that's where life truly is. Father, we just ask that you would continue your transforming work as you promised to do. Grow us together as a one church family. May we in one, with one motion, one voice, one response, eagerly pursue you and your righteousness for your namesake, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.